Hey, thanks for tuning in to Stories Unlimited. And if we got a story for you. So pull up a chair, bar stool, or settle into your car seat and join me, Dave Casey, coming to you from the rough and tumble shores of Lake Michigan. Taylor, what exotic locale are you coming from? Oh, yeah, it's Dave. I'm Taylor Mason, and I am in the thriving community of Skagway, Alaska, just up north of the Inner Passageway, if you've ever been north of Vancouver. I'm headed toward Juneau. And I, I can't even believe that this is happening. So I'm in, uh, I'm in Alaska. You're in Chicago. Our producer is in New York. And we're talking to each other and doing a podcast. <laughs> Let's see how long this lasts. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Listen, it's the a only reason, here, listen and, Dave, just to get things kickstarted here, the only reason this is happening at all is because your daughter, Caroline Casey, our producer, has been instrumental in getting the production, the logistics of productions going for this. We've now used two different platforms to oh. record on. She has nailed everything down, sound, quality, the, you know, the entire production itself. So, you know, I, I look to her, I mean, I don't know about you, but the way I look at it is I just look to Caroline for all the answers and. Oh, yes. She is the ultimate teacher <laughs> teaching two old dogs, new tricks that, I forget every time a week, you know, passes. I forget the new trick, and I have to relearn it. Each, I'm with you, babe. Each week, I am with you. But she's a tripper. She is a trooper and a trip, and uh, to put up with us two guys. And I was thinking, this time of year, back to school, there's got to be so many great teacher stories. So I thought we'd delve into that. Wondering. Uh, Anybody come to mind? You know, you right well, yeah, you know, um, there's just so many people that that have made. Obviously, family members for me have been a huge uh, basis of support for my my parents. First of all, and my parents were from the uh, age of um, you can do it if you put your mind to it. You can do anything. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything if you put your mind to it. You can do it. Which obviously, I'm never going to be able to dunk a basketball, right? But well, there, there are such things as eight there foot you go. baskets. See, you, if, there, where there's my a will, there's one of my mother's favorite saying. If there's a will, where there's a will, where there's a will, there's a way. And she, my parents, so that is why I, I do what I do. It's why I played college football, even though too small, too slow, too dumb, no athletic ability at all. You know, I, but I walked on because I was told you can do anything you want to do. You put your mind to it, you can do it. So and my career is all based on, you know, I have a chip on my shoulder the size of the Rock of Gibraltar, and no chiropractor on the planet is going to be able to help me with that. But <laughs> well, you got you got to share with us what is one great lesson that a coach from Illinois taught you in your football career or high school coach? What's the best football the, lesson the, you ever? By got? far, here's the best lesson. I and I'm glad you asked that. Um, I had a great, I had great high school football coaches, starting with a guy named Gary Salaski, a guy named Bob Damon, uh, uh, Dean Riley, Coach Steinbach. I had all these great coaches in uh, Mr. Myers, Mr. Murphy, all these great coaches all through high school, two different high schools. Here's the thing I learned, Dave, and it, it's so true across all walks of life. I don't, I never had to be the best player on the field. I never had to be better than the guy right in front of me. I had to be the best player one play. One moment in time, one play, 
one moment, I have to be the best I can possibly be just for this one, one third down and eight. I have to be the best I can possibly be. Yep. And that means I'm even if I get knocked down, which happened a lot, and I t- tell people the story all the time, I got knocked down. I mean, I got knocked down so much. It's, it's embarrassing to think how many times I got pancaked. But instead of laying there <laughs> and counting the clouds or the people in the stands at Camp Randall Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, I would get up. Just don't lay, don't lay there. And that, yeah. that's what I was told. You don't have to be the best. You have to be the best you can be for this one moment. And if you get knocked down, get up. Don't just lay there. And, and that, that yeah, and- has stuck with me. I'm glad you asked because that has stuck with me my entire life. How about you? Well, I just got to say that you've been knocked down by some of the best, too, because some of these guys have, you know, were were all Big Ten, ended up in the pros, had long careers in the pros. Uh, Who was that guy from Ohio State? I remember you telling the story where all you saw was these big (laughs) numbers coming at you. I think his name name was Byron Cato. And I don't think, I don't know if he played in the NFL. Oh, here's a good one. I played against this guy named Kirk Gibson, who at Michigan State, who later hit a world famous, a home run heard around the world in the World Series off of Dennis Eckersley back in the day um, in, in, you know, Chavez Ravine. Yeah. Yeah. He was the tight end for Michigan State. Exactly. He sure was. And I didn't really tackle him. I think I had been knocked down. And then in a daze, I was getting up. I think, you know, I had been knocked out, but I was still kind of quivering. (laughs) I think my my foot was kind of shaking the the way you see a a cadaver, (laughs) like just before it goes completely. And I think my foot might have hit his foot and he fell down and I got credit for a tackle. (laughs) So that's it. (laughs) And was this on the way to the end zone or on the way back to celebrate? (laughs) Either or. Take your pick. I think we lost that. I think we lost that game by six touchdowns. But yeah, what you know? Oh, but man. yes, I you know. So I played against great players, you know. Um, and then another interesting thing was I had a great teammate at Illinois, Keith Burlingame, who's had a very successful career in the aluminum business, believe it or not. And he was was very helpful to me because you know I was just so small, so small compared to all the other linemen. And when the coach would say, "Okay, pair up." You know, I'd be standing by myself. No, who, who wants to pair up with me for any kind of drill? But my buddy Keith, and what a great, he was just so great for me because when I would travel, I rarely tell this story because it's so humiliating. The coaches wouldn't even tell me that I made the travel team. Keith, my buddy Keith, <laughs> what a great, I mean, what a great mentor. This, And he's a year younger than I am. He would say, hey, man, why are you getting dressed to go okay. back to your you know, to the fraternity. Well, I've got to study, you know, tomorrow's Friday. Well, you're on the travel team. What? Yeah. And he would grab me, take me over. And there's my name. You know, you're going to Minnesota, going to Minneapolis. Whoa. Nobody told, nobody told me. So if it wasn't for him, I would never <laughs> gone. I would never gotten on the plane. The coaches had gotten pissed off that you would abandon the, you know, the most important job you had, which was to show up. <laughs> you know, oh they, I think, God. I think some of my coaches back then were just, you know, I was small and I would do, Dave, you know, I did a lot of really bad things. I did some things, some things I'm proud of, you know, third and nine versus Iowa, their quarterback yeah. is pretty, pretty me- mediocre. So they come up to the line of scrimmage and I just shout, start shouting, watch for the draw, watch for the draw. Why? 
because it's third and nine and the quarterback can throw. So he ca- he panics and calls a timeout, runs over the side. <laughs> runs over the side, comes back. They line up and I go, watch for the screen. Watch for the screen. Timeout. <laughs> and he's as he's running up the field, he's yelling at their coaches. They know our plays. <laughs> Listen to this. It gets worse because one of our assistant coaches, Joe Scambatti, says yeah. to me, are you, how are you guessing their plays? Are you guess, guessing it by, for, you know, formation? And I just yeah. looked at him like, you're a coach. I yeah. shouldn't be coaching you. And I said, I just shouted, no, I'm not guessing by formation. It's third and nine and they can't throw. So it's either going to be a draw or a screen. And I just guessed right <laughs> twice. <laughs> and then he was mad. He like threw his hat at me. Like I said, oh. like I was wrong. Yeah. Oh, jeez. That's why we were 1-9-1 and one or 1-10-1, and one, whatever we were. <laughs> oh, God, that's crazy. Oh, well, I'm going to go back to some traditional teachers I had. And uh, I got to say, they I was shaped in many ways, as everybody is, by the elementary school experience. But <laughs> I had a disciplinarian in first grade, Mrs. Schaefer. And... Uh, I, I made up some ditty about, because at the time, Schaefer is the one beer to have when oh, you're yes. having more than one. <laughs> and I made up some ditty about Schaefer is the worst teacher to have, even if she's the only one or something. <laughs> oh. that's great made up some ditty that I got a lot of kudos for singing in the schoolyard <laughs> until once she overheard me. Because I didn't see her behind me, I don't think I don't think I was uh, much of a pet, uh, you know, in her class. But she was kind of fun. She wasn't, you know, a total dick. But then, the very next year, I get Mrs. Bowman, who was so bad that a friend of mine knew them personally, the Bowman family personally, and they pulled their son out of our class because they didn't want her to teach him. And he was one of the coolest kids, Jody Catuso, who grew up to be an MVP of the Army-Navy game one year. Wow. And and so he was one of the coolest kids in the class. And he left at like day two. And we're stuck with this. Oh, she was, her, her skin was so pale white. She was a thin Ichabod Crane looking chick. And she was just all about the discipline. So I think to this day, the reason I became a class clown and got into advertising to make people laugh is I I couldn't deal with this two straight years of disciplinarians. So I started doing whatever I could to get under this teacher's skin and get, you know, a positive response from all my classmates who couldn't wait for the blister to burst because she was <laughs> just a, a blister on our lives. But one of my favorite things I did we got a spelling list every week, 10 words on the spelling list. And I had an older brother who was into watching The Untouchables. And we used to talk about, uh, you know, gangland murders. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the first week we moved into Cherry Hill, New Jersey, this gangster Adam Mucci got shot down at the Garden State Parkway, uh, whatever. There was some kind of cocktail bar connected to it. And he got shot down in a hail of bullet fire like the first week we lived there. So we just got, you know, we just got in, 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 enchanted by this, you know, man, people just go around blowing you away. Well, in the neighborhood. Week, <laughs> That's great. Every, 
And then every week on the Untouchables, more gang guys were killing guys in different ways. So I made it my task with the spelling list. The one I, I, I remember a couple. One, we got cheese was one of the words on our spelling list. So I said, I, I said something about a guy getting, you know, just got gunned down with machine gun bullets. And he looked like a slice of Swiss cheese when they were through with him. Oh, great. Then in, Another word on the list was flower. And I said they cut his body up and stuck it in sacks of flour so he couldn't be found. And I I started coming every and, and, and so every sentence that I used for this, the spelling words was around some kind of gangland murder. So this happened week after week after week. And finally, after about three weeks of this, and I'm just having a ton of fun, I'm getting 100 on all my spelling tests, and I'm getting a check mark on my paper. And uh, finally, Mrs. Bowman says, you've got to quit writing about this kind of topic. It's just not, you know, it's nobody, nobody wants to read about it. If you did that today, if you did that today, and today, you would Oh, they, they, they would. Yeah, I wouldn't be allowed to go to school. But then she says, nobody wants to read this. And I said, are you kidding? All my friends love it. And oh, <laughs> she didn't like that answer one bit. So she said, you cannot do this anymore. So what's the first thing I did when I got home? Oh, what crazy ways can I murder people on this spelling list? Oh, that's great. So, so the next week I turn it in, just, I was so excited. I was like a kid at Christmas. I couldn't wait for her reaction. <laughs> well, she did not take kindly to it. And in fact, called my parents and had a teacher parent conference all about the fact that your son is a sick dude. <laughs> I don't oh, know. What, I wasn't a part of the conference, so I don't know. But my parents did come home and impress upon me the need to quit doing this. And so I so but I did have a good month of uh, just gangland murder and mayhem. And but I think uh, it's interesting, Dave, Dave, I think it's interesting that you had these two disciplinarians at the beginning of your public school education. Life, oh, yeah. Right. But that uh, that. But instead of becoming a discipline, and you are very disciplined in your work, but instead of yep. following that, you kind of you kind of took it and went the opposite direction. You know, it forced you to use your to, you know to think. Well, how can I get around this? You know, while being a, while being disciplined, how can I get around this and make this at least enjoy palatable for me as a student in, in second grade? So that's pretty cool. And in fact- yeah, thanks. I got a kick out of not only doing well in school, but driving the teacher crazy while I was doing it. And that yeah. became that became my modus operandi the rest of my life. Oh, that's in a fact, thing. I think that's high, a, that's a thing. That's a thing, man. That is a thing. And good it, for you. It, in junior high, we got uh, a graded on our ability to learn A, B, C, D. But then we got one, two or three based on your behavior, your self-control. And one was good and three was bad. Well, it was my goal to get straight A threes. And uh, I, would yes. get, I would get ticked off if the teacher gave me an A2. I'd be like, what, what didn't I do bad enough? You know, I'm like, come on, what do I do? What do I have to do in this class to get a three? Oh, that's and great. My dad, my dad would crack up. But I had to get that A because if you got straight A's, you got free Phillies tickets at the end of the year. Oh, and to wow. Me, oh, 
oh, that was that, – even though I went to a bunch of Phillies games anyway, that just getting something for free was right. uh, well worth it. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, that that's what that became. But then the reason I am disciplined is a Mrs. Stewart in fourth grade. She was the, the, the best kind of teacher because you could get her to go off tangent, and she'd talk about the abominable snowman for a half hour. And you're looking at that clock and you're going, oh, yeah, man, this is great. We'll never get to algebra, you know, not algebra, but we'll never get to math today the way she's going. And we would ask her more questions. Well, have you ever seen an abominable snowman? Or do they actually eat people? And we, she would just keep going and going. She loved to talk about weird, you know, scientific stuff. But she taught us. I remember the one day, it was early in the school year, fourth grade. She walks in and she fills. Well, no, we walk into a blackboard that is three blackboard panels filled with an outline about dinosaurs. Not bad. Not bad. That's not, that is not bad. Fourth grade? She, fourth grade. And what that taught us was the importance of you talk about discipline, a disciplined way to go about, I used outlines from then on. She taught us how the, there's your main topic, your subtopic, then you go into the details. So there was like your one A, Amen. one A, B, one A, C, one A, D. And, she, and this thing was just so, I was fascinated. And I've used outlines all the way through grad school. If I had a paper to do, I would write an outline. And I have Mrs. Stewart to thank for it. She was. That is awesome. That is awesome. That and that was and that was third grade or fourth grade. Fourth grade. Fourth grade. She instilled. So fourth grade, you were you were ten. You were ten years old. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Nine or ten. And she instilled in me, and I wouldn't doubt if uh, there were more than just me. Guys like Steve Fillerbrown, who was uh, smarter than I ever was. I'm sure they used, uh, you know, what do you call it, outlines the rest of their life because they were so brilliant. And it was so easy and it was so clear the advantages of using an outline and how it would discipline how you would attack any paper you ever got. And, uh, yeah, so I can, you know, I can attest to her as the beacon of all my success from then on. Thank you, Mrs. Stewart. Yeah. I, you know, that, I, had a, um, I had a piano teacher, Mrs. Randall, and I think, you know, she had um, a couple of boys. This was in the 1960s. And boys weren't taking, I think there were two of us, two boys who took piano lessons. But here's what, what was just so uh, inspiring about Mrs. Randall's. You would walk into her house. I've told this story many times to people. It was, it was such a, the, her, her place, her little piano room was a world of fantastic. She had these crystal figurines on the windows yeah so the sun was shining in so it was like a psychedelic oh. as soon as you walked in the whole thing the piano was just a bait you know a spinet piano yeah you know, tiny against the wall but with the lights it was almost like a disco light show The you know the, the reflecting lights and then she would let you do whatever you you know you had to learn what's called hand and exercises which is a book of fingering exercises for pianists but she would let you um she was great because you would, you know, you would have to learn. Now, and I'm following up your disciplinarian. So you'd have to learn whatever the Bach inventions, whatever uh, the Chopin polonaises, whatever you're working on. Yeah. But then the last 15 minutes, she would let you do whatever you want. 
So you would say, well, I heard this song on the radio called Gotta Get a Message to You by the Bee Gees. She had no idea who the Bee Gees were, but she would let you try to, you know, try to do it. She would turn on the radio, you know, just in case maybe they would come on. Because this is before you had tape recordings or anything. You know, there was no, you couldn't stream it. So you couldn't just have it on your iPhone. You have to turn on the radio, hope it came on. It didn't. So I would just try and she would let me. Yeah. And that had such an effect on me for not having to have music in front of me to sight read. You know, I always, when I was playing piano bar, people would say, do you know how to play mood indigo? Yeah. And I would say, well, if you can sing it, I can you know, play. I'll, I'll figure out a way to, to follow you unless you're so bad, which was <laughs> nine times out of 10. Yeah. But um, it's, it's interesting how, you know, those people, and I was probably 10 or 11 years old. So we were yeah. the same age range when we met these people. Another interesting teacher that I had was Mrs. Gibbons. And I think Mrs. Gibbons was um, freshman high school. And her thing was uh, pop music was really big. So this is like fall of what, 71, probably 1970, 71. She let us dissect Bob Dylan lyrics. Oh, cool. In the class. Oh my gosh, Dave. That was, I, I didn't just look forward to that class. I would, I would beg to go to the bathroom for Mr. Byard's math class so that I could just be first in line at Mrs. Gibbons' class just to walk in. And she was, she was not like this stunning, attractive woman, yeah. but I was so taken with her. And she would, you know, we would come and she put a Bob Dylan record on the, and then we would write down all the words. So you were learning so much stuff. And then the class would have a discussion about um, Highway 61. Oh. You know, it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. <laughs> that is. Oh, my God. That is so awesome. And what grade again? That was freshman in high school. Oh, I was a freshman in high school. Oh, that is the perfect age to get a class like that, too. I mean, oh, it was it's 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 made such because, you know, stuff I've used my entire life. Well, and then when I met you, Northwestern University, there's this guy who I, you know, I was head to head with knocking heads the whole time. But we had a professor named Don Schultz. Oh, God. Yeah. Who is. Yeah, I mean, if you're in if you're in marketing in the Chicago area, you probably have either met him, worked with him, read his stuff, oh, or you've sure. been influenced by, by this guy, Don Schultz. For sure. So his thing, this is an advertising class that I'm taking where we met in the summer of 1982. So I'm, what, 26. And um, I'm working in comedy. I'm really basically moonlighting as a student at yeah. Northwestern grad right. school because I'm working in comedy. And I'm, I'm struggling like everybody does when they, you know, I've been doing it for a couple of years, five years or so. Yeah. And I've got an act, but it's, you know, it's one of those acts where, you know, now I would, I would be back in the back watching, boy, this guy needs some stage time. So Schultz's thing was just get to the point. And this happens a lot. You hear people tell a story. I've got a joke for you. Yeah. And they'll do this long setup because they've got, you know, to kind of, I guess they want to, uh, a layman will think if they do the long setup, that'll set up the joke better. But Schultz's thing was get to the point. And if you can, I don't know if you remember this. Who if you cares? Can, oh, that was just one of his. <laughs> if you had a, a one page synopsis of whatever it was he was working on, you know, he would just hold it up for everybody. Yeah. Who cares? Because there were too many words. Yeah. The, the, the would, only time I ever got a compliment purple, from him. He would put a big purple pen mark across the page, throw it in the trash and go, <laughs> who cared? <laughs> The only time I got a good grade from him was one time the answer was location. And so I just wrote that. That was my whole paper. 
I didn't write write two pages. Screen I just pass, wrote one screen word. Pass. <laughs> you guessed exactly. right. You guessed right on that one. Whole, I, and and he he was like, but he didn't say to me, you know, this is great. He just hmm. he looked at it hmm. and then yeah. put it down. But I didn't get the purple pen. I didn't get the who cares. It was like the only time I finally had figured it out. And my point is that when I use that, I use his teaching today. Get to the punchline. What I found was similar, Dave. When you watch sitcoms or movies, yeah. Yeah. the biggest laughs come from one word punchlines. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, people go, what? Wah-ha-ha-ha-ha. No way. Wah-ha-ha-ha-ha. You know, one, two word punchlines. It's they a get the punch laugh. line. It's a jab. It's boom, like that. It hits exactly. you. Exactly. And he you taught me that in an advertising class. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, well, he taught me something. A great lesson he taught me was the first day of class, he asked everybody to write an a one-page autobiography. Oh, yeah. I remember. Everybody writes an autobiography, and he starts reading them. Oh, and, you know, raise your hand when you know who this is. And so, yeah, oh, yeah. And he goes, all right. You know what nobody in this entire class did? Not one person included their name on their autobiography. What kind of branding is that? <laughs> I should know your name after the first sentence. Why is nobody including their name? You don't even know how to talk about yourself. And then he started, he's, and then everybody's mouth is wide open going, damn, he's right. Whoever. Oh yeah. I was one of them. I was one of those. Yeah. Oh, I was one of those. And I'd never, you know, boy, when it came to advertising, I always made sure that brand name got in there quick. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons for whatever success I had in the business was the discipline I learned from Schultz get the brand name out there. Who cares? Get to the damn point. What's in it? For you. Make sure everybody knows what's in it for you and not what's in it for the person, you know, not, Hey, we make, you know, this, that, and the other thing. No, what's the benefit to me? And, uh, yeah, he was great that way. He, we had know, and few- out of all the, prof- out of all the professors we had, at Northwestern, and they're, they're all great. I mean, it's a great, it's, you know, they charge a lot of money to go there. It's a private school, blah, 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 blah. But he was the one who influenced me the most. Oh, for sure. He had, and and we've, we have classmates who have done very, very well. Um, some of them, uh, Gene Lindbergh in the business of advertising. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some, Tom, uh, Tom uh, Lenz, I can't remember his last name now. Zelensky. But he works in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, oh. him. Um, so, but I guarantee you those those guys were very influenced by Don Schultz yeah. and his teachings. Oh, yeah. And when I was when I was an undergrad, I had a great professor at the University of Illinois named Curley. And this is this is another one of my great favorite stories. So undergrad, I, I'm writing. It's um, an English uh, writing class. It's um, how to write how to write creatively. It's like a creative writing, I guess you would say. Yeah. So um, it's it's not level one. It's two level two or three. So. I am going to finish up my the semester with a big, with a bang. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write rock and roll lyrics. And that is going to be like poems. Yes. Um, rock and roll style about my experience so far as a junior at the University of Illinois. It's like 10 pages long, handwritten. Yeah. Very proud of it. I take it in to Curly. And he looks at it and holds it up and says, poetry. The first day of class, don't you remember? I said, I hate poetry. And he throws it in the garbage can. 
<laughs> you got to know Try your it. audience. You got to know your audience. That's oh my the, gosh. That's another so great I, lesson in life. Oh my gosh. So I, I didn't listen. I was there first day of class and I didn't hear him say, I hate poetry. Everybody oh. else did. Yeah. And they're all looking at me like, what a moron. Yeah. So what did I do? I, I got knocked down. So I, I went back that day and I wrote like this long, um, fantastical story about, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, a gang and a girl and a guy, kind of a Romeo and Juliet-ish kind of thing yes. from the south side of Chicago, but not in a poem. I tried to do it as if Bruce Springsteen, a la Mrs. Gibson, yeah. in freshman, I tried to write it as if Bruce Springsteen was writing a song, but no poems, just writing a book. So it's, it, it turns out to be, I write it all night. I'm up all night. Okay. I come in the next day. I don't, I don't have class for another day. I come in and put it on his desk. I wrote this. I'm sorry. Nothing wrong. <laughs> I wrote this. And then, and so with the next day in class and the, his class was the next day. And yep. he said, you know, he made a point of saying he had everybody read the, the story that I wrote. Whoa. And he said, you know, um, he said, you know, you can, from my class, uh, you're either going to have learned something or you won't have learned something. And this guy learned something. And then he paid it. So he was one of the best teachers, even though, and I think I got a B. I think he gave me for the year a B and I was a little bit insulted. Oh, wow. Because, because I worked my butt off. But I think he took points away from writing the poet, the 10 pages of poetry, which, you know, should have listened the first day of class, but uh, whatever. I want to go back to something you said earlier about it, you, it, you can't talk teachers without talking teacher crushes. And oh, yeah. Junior high, that's, you know, never give a kid, a boy, a good-looking teacher in junior high. I mean, it's just, Um, you're not even paying any attention to what she's talking about. And Ms. Levin, or Mrs. Levin, the problem was she went by Ms. because it was that time, you know, during uh, women's lib was just starting out. So we had no idea if she was married or not. We didn't even want to conceive of the fact that she was married because she was all for us. And she was like, <laughs> she was like our private every, you know, five day a week uh, playboy bunny. I mean, she dressed so incredibly, you know, she shouldn't have, I don't know why they even allowed her to go to junior high dressed like she did. Generally, so she was dressing, wait a minute, she was dressing provocatively then, is what you're Very saying. provocatively. She, wow. uh, the amount of material that her dresses were, and they were all dresses, there were no suit pants in this day and age. Right. They couldn't have covered a dining room seat. I mean, but somehow they stretched all across her curvaceous body. She had this beautiful, beautiful, smooth white skin. And uh, and, and then she would just, you know, hypnotize every boy in class all day long. And I'm sure she, on some level, knew it. And uh, but. Oh, yeah. Here oh, yeah. it was. Here it was the last day of class before Christmas break. And everybody's, you know, supercharged with energy, getting ready. This, you know, we got, you know, a half hour more and we're out of here. And everybody's excited. Well, she asked everybody to take a seat. She had a big announcement to make. Like, oh, okay, what is it? What is it? She wants to run away with me? Come on, that's crazy. Don't tell everybody. (laughs) But no, she goes... She starts telling everybody that she won't be back and uh, this is going to be her last day of class. And we're all like, oh, 
man, you know, we're dying inside. And, you know, there goes the free show every day. And she goes into this big thing about what, what a pleasure it's been. And you got to remember, at the same time that this is going on, there was a very, very popular Shake and Bake commercial. Shake and Bake. Oh, yeah. And it was a Southern family. And, you know, it was, oh, it's so easy to do. All you do is put chicken in here and da, 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 da. And they had a big catch line where the little girl at the end goes, you know, and this is great fried chicken. And do you remember what the little girl says? I'm, something like, I made it myself. What, what is it? She goes, yeah, and I helped. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> with, with the more most corn-pone Southern accent ever, it used to drive my dad crazy because he was a real Southerner, and it, it just was the most, uh, you know, un, you know, it was an L.A. little little L.A. precocious girl got hired, gets in front of a camera, and does an imitation of the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, and I <laughs> helped like that. We all it's saw it. It was a na- it was a national commercial. Everybody saw it. It was another it was, it was another it was, era. So if you watch TV, hit. you saw the Shake and Bake ad. Yeah, big hit. So Mrs. Ms. Levin is getting to the end of her fond farewell and all the emotional things, and and finally she goes. But there is a there is some good news, and we're like, oh yeah, what's that? What's that? Everybody ears perk up, and she goes, the reason I'm leaving. Big pause. Is because I'm pregnant. And Bob Young shouts from the back of the room without skipping a beat. Yeah. And I helped. Oh my Lord. The class was in stitches. It was so freaking perfectly timed. Yeah. And I helped. And how cool was Mrs. Ms. Levin? who we just found out was married, most of us, she, she, she tried to hold back her laugh, held it, and then finally burst out laughing and just nodded like to Bob Young, that was a good one, without saying it. And oh, didn't crazy. get angry, didn't get upset. She thought that was hilarious just as much as the rest of us did. But and then she rode off into the sunset, never to be seen again. But I'll never forget her Paisley dress. Paisley was big at that time. And oh, yeah. uh oh, she would wear that thing like once every two weeks, and that was probably the skimpiest outfit she had. And I, I guarantee you, if you were to pull uh, that class. Half the kids would remember that outfit. Oh, I, I'll never forget that. And I helped. That's just so great. And that, that you know, three-word punchline in that particular case, I helped. And I helped. Perfect. It all come. It all fits. You know, um, when my family moved from, my family moved from uh, the Chicago suburbs out to Ottawa, Illinois, when, when I was a junior high school. And I've got a history class. And they have a substitute come in for like the last, I don't six months of the year. Yeah. And he's a very good looking guy. He's like Tom Selleck. Oh, um, yeah. On stage. He is so good looking. And the girls in the class, I, I've just moved there, and the girls are agog. Yes. They are just st- drooling. And what, so, what, what age again? I'm sorry. I'm a junior in high school, so I'm 15, okay. 16 years old. Yes, yes. So that's still, that's still, that's still prime teacher crush years. Exactly. So now, one day after class, 
Um, and I hear the, and I don't know anybody because I've, I've just moved there, you know, and they're all, the girls are all talking, oh, he's gorgeous. Oh my God. I, he's gorgeous. I would date him in a heartbeat, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. I, on the other hand, am really into the class because what are we talking about? Mythology. And we're going to talk about the Oracle of Delphi. Mm. So he's teaching them. And I'm, of course, I'm, I'm a closet ventriloquist at the time. So the Oracle of Delphi has a huge impact on me because it, the Oracle is basically, she's, people are coming to her. If you're not familiar with the Oracle of Delphi, she's in a cave in the Delphinic Mountains, whatever they are, in, in Greece. And people come to her for answers. And she, it, she hears voices. And you can hear the people who come to see her, they can hear the voices too echoing around this cave. And yes. many people think that the oracle was basically, she was a ventriloquist. And these are, these, are, these are the most important people in Greece, the kings, the queens, and they're <laughs> coming the or- to this exactly. they want the answers. To get, to get earth-shattering answers. From a ventriloquist <laughs> oh, in a cave, in a dark yes. cave where there's water dripping. Okay, so I am totally tuned into what this guy is saying. Yeah, and I, I I wish I could remember his name. And I called Mrs. Gibbons, Mrs. Gibson. I want to make sure I get it right. Her name was Mrs. Gibbons. I don't remember this man's name. I just remember all the girls loving him. And one day, he's teaching the Oracle of Delphi, and I'm too, I am totally tuned in for obvious reasons. I'm just yeah. this is information I need. And he says something um, to the effect of, and we're talking about the Oracle of Delphi. Can anybody tell me what who we're talking about? Now, I've just moved there, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Yes. But nobody says anything. Yes. None of them say anything. I'm going to say there's eight guys and 12 girls in the class. Right. Nobody right. says a word. And he says, the teacher, now he's mad. Yes. And he says, wait a minute. Nobody knows what I'm talking about here. So I turn around, and the girls are all just, they're, they're all glassy-eyed. They don't <laughs> even know what he's saying. So I turn around and say, you're talking about the Oracle of Delphi. Thank you, Mr. Mason. And then he goes on. But. My point is, it was very much like you and Ms. Levin, where it didn't matter. Nobody heard a word this guy said, not yes. a word, <laughs> except for me, you know, the ventriloquist in the class who's desperate to get this information <laughs> from the Tom Selleck figure, you know, and I just remember him, nobody heard what I just said. I, he was just, he just couldn't believe that he'd just been talking for 10 minutes and nobody had any clue what he was talking about, except for me sitting there and ask, and I would ask these questions. Do you think she's a ventriloquist? Well, uh, no, uh, Mr. Mason, I don't know. Well, you know, she had to make the voices come from, you know, I'm just like, and my thing, the girls are just, they don't care what he says. Yeah. You know, they're all wearing, it's, they're all 16, 15, wearing mini skirts, cross legs under the desk. You know exactly right. what I'm talking He could be about. Charles Manson. He could be talking about Charles Manson for all they care. Exactly. Exactly. So I get your whole, your Miss Levin. Um, you know, Another teacher, before we, you were talking about grade school, I had a principal at my grade school named Ray Shirk, who was a really good guy, just a really nice man. Yeah. And this, I had a similar experience. Um, in first grade, Mrs. Feather was our teacher, and she had put <laughs> on the wall was the, <laughs> the, uh, the now cliche figure of a fish becoming a man or becoming an ape, an ape becoming a man, and the oh, man yes. becomes... Yeah. So that's up there. And uh, we're talking about now prehistoric, uh, you know, Paleolithic man, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so she's got she's got her blackboard long stick marker, and she's pointing, you know, this is a caveman. This is, you know, a modern-day man. This is an ape. 
you know, and she points to the middle. And before she can say, this is a caveman, I shout out, I shout out, that's Mr. Shirk. And the class, <laughs> <laughs> the class goes up for grabs. But I did not get the same, the, the uh, same treatment Mr. Young got. I got, Mrs. Feather took me by the ear, grabbed my earlobe, <laughs> and marched me down to the principal's office. And I'm first grade, and I'm scared to death. And she says, you sit here. And there's, there's a chair for the bad boys sit <laughs> right outside. And I sit there for a few minutes. And then Mr. Shirk motions me in. And now I'm going to, and this is a huge moment. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sitting at the desk. He's at the desk. I'm with this little chair in front of him. What did you do, Taylor? And I explain, I just spill, I'm crying. I'm so upset. I'm going to have to tell my parents, you know, well, there, there was this, this picture of a caveman and Mr. <laughs> feather pointed at and I said it was you <laughs> <laughs> and Dave he starts laughing he starts, he's out yeah. the desk yeah. and laughing and he says to me that's great get out of here <laughs> good, one. good one Taylor you're going to amount to something someday <laughs> and obviously that had just and I remember going home and then Mr. Shirk really loved LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, our president. Oh, yes. What, number 39 or something. Anyway, he would wear like this big uh, LBJ, the president, used to wear a big 10-gallon Texas. He was oh, from Texas, wore a yeah. big cowboy hat. Oh, yeah. Mr. Shirk was a stone Chicago Democrat and would wear that thing around, around. And my dad is a stone Republican. But I remember on the playground, this is maybe a week later, Yeah. Um, my dad comes to pick me up. And Mr. Shirk is wearing his, his, you know, his big hat, and he goes over to my dad. And he says, "Your son told a good one the other day." And I just remember being so proud of my. I was in first grade. I was so proud yeah. of myself. Yeah. Mrs. Feather thought it was bad, but Mr. Shirk, the principal's on my side. Hey, that's the kind of positive reinforcement that led you to start looking for the creative outlet. Amen to take a left foot when everybody was taking their right foot. Come on. That's what it's all about. Oh, right. the, the, uh, I tell you, it's so many stories rush to mind. When I think of that, this one didn't involve me, but one of my best friends at the time and all through high school, Steve Betts was, it, it was kind of similar to the one where I was singing the ditty about Mrs. Schaefer and she overheard me. Right. Well, Steve Betts had a sixth grade teacher who, uh, Mr. God, I can't remember his name now, but anyway, he was very popular with the kids because he, he was a kid's teacher. You know, he was just a nice guy and always put the kids first, made learning fun, a lot of recess time. So they're, they're in class and class is gathering. And Steve Betts, oh, one thing I forgot to say is this teacher, uh, lost part of his arm or it was disfigured in World War II in action. Oh, so even though he was an older guy by now, you know, he didn't look like an 18-year-old, but, you know, he's just a little older, but he still had this, like, one arm looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex compared to a human, you know, a long human arm, right. sort of shriveled. And he would always, you know, he would always hold it close to his chest and nobody dared say a word about it. Nobody oh, yeah. brought up his arm ever. Well, Steve Betts is in, I don't know what made him do this. He was in class before class started, and he was drawing a pic. Oh, Mr. O'Brien. He was drawing a picture of Mr. O'Brien, and he drew him with the Tyrannosaurus Rex arm. Oh, gosh. 
and his normal arm. And everybody in the class is giggling and laughing, and uh, except for those who had some kind of good parental upbringing. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, that says the class gets real quiet, and he didn't have to turn around. No. <laughs> no. And he just started erasing. <laughs> <laughs> And took his seat. I don't know if there were any ramifications because, like I said, I wasn't in that class. But I can remember he was just, he was mortified. Uh, like, he couldn't believe he got caught doing something that stupid. <laughs> but, yeah, hey, yeah. boys will be boys, and uh, that's the way we did it. To, to kind of follow up on your on your story about um, just, you, you know, you're taking the opposite, you know, getting A's and, uh, you know, the lowest possible grade for deportment at the same yes. time. Oh, when I was when when we met, I was working in the comedy clubs and the com the comedians, many of whom were were my professors, just the same as Mr. Schultz at, at Northwestern was, or Mr. Curley at the University of Illinois. All these comics: T. P. Mulrooney, Larry Reeve, Judy Tenuta, Emo Phillips, Tim Cavanaugh. I would work with these guys all the time, yeah. and they had this this game that was really rough, where. Oh man, they, they there'd be a bet in the back of the room on a slow night, maybe twenty people in the crowd on a slow Tuesday night at Zany's Comedy Club. And the bet was you go on stage, you insult everybody in the audience. You, you tell them what awful human beings they are and have them hate you. And then you have X amount of time to get them back on your side and applauding. So sometimes you know, when you start, now I was just starting out, so I didn't know all the rules. And of course yes. they would take advantage. So go up, you know, I'm the MC. Make the audience hate me, and now I have ten minutes yes, to get to, them back. Oh man, that's a dangerous. Game. <laughs> oh, it was. But similar to your A's, getting an A but a three in deportment, it was such a a, a badge of honor when you would go up and tell people how homely and worthless they are. And then within 10 minutes, have them laughing and applauding and then introduce <laughs> the next act and walk off stage. And you know, what would you get? Maybe you'd get like $5. You know, okay, you won. You know, here's yeah. your $5, you fool. Yeah. <laughs> but you gained their respect for, for 30 seconds. And you learned a lot. You learned a lot doing it. I learned an incredible amount. In fact, there was a, there was a comedian who used to write for, he's still around. He's still working. Good guy, Jimmy Brogan. And he um, said to me, he's watched me work. I was at the club one night and he, I don't know why he was there. Uh, he was an LA guy. And I'm doing, when I was MC, what you would do is you had to kill, you don't want to do any too much uh, content, real content, because you don't want to take away all the premises from the, the, the three comedians going on after you, just the MC. So I would do a lot of where are you from? What do you do for a living? Uh, where do you live? How long have you been here in town? So, you know, you just, you just pick 10 people out of the audience and you would do that. And after a while, you get really good at it. You know, you start to read people and you know when not to ask them certain questions. And you start from their answers, who's a good sport, who's not, how far can I go with this? And yeah. uh, and I would do that. And it was a great, that was a great, that's right when I met you is right around the same time. And it okay. was great learning stuff because you would, you would really connect with people. You would really, yeah. you, you were forced to connect with people. And Jimmy Brogan said, he gave me his business card. He said, I do that same thing. That's my whole act. And on his business card <laughs> was Jimmy Brogan. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? 
that was his that was his oh, business card. okay is that yeah i, th- I always thought that was kind of cool um he came and he just saw me he was doing a set i think he was he came in to do um Oh, Irv Cupson had a, a talk show on public radio in Chicago. And I think Brogan <laughs> came in to do that okay. and came in to do a regular comedy set. And I was, you know, I did his, where are you from? What do you do? Without, I've never met him before, but that is the classic way to start off emceeing. And I, and as you said, I learned so much. And a lot of it, what I learned was from people who had paid to see the show. <laughs> they had come in to pay to see a comedy show. And now here I am asking him, they were they were basically the show where where they were from what they did for a living what their relationship status was why they were sitting with the people they were sitting with yeah and I came <laughs> with a bunch of a bunch of lines one of them there was a group from Ohio Chicago used to be a big convention town and um, off the top of my head some of the best jokes are always the, off the top of your head this group from was in town for, from Ohio for the car show so I asked this big fat guy who was obnoxious and loud. Yeah. In the front, where, where are you from? And he said, we're from Ohio. And my yeah. retort was, Ohio, 48th in tourism, which is my one of my favorite lines I've ever said, and I still use it in my act, Ohio, 48th in tourism. Even though they have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they also yeah. have Cleveland. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're 48th no, yeah, in tourism. There's no reason to stop in Ohio. In fact, God. The only reason I ever stop in Ohio is because their damn state troopers stop you for speeding. <laughs> They're the worst. Route 80. They are the worst. My son got bit by the same bug. I told him this is the worst state in the union. They're always just ready to get you. It has no redeeming value. They're all northerners, but they think they're southerners. They, they just don't know what they're doing. I hear you. But the I tell you, talk about You know, I got into advertising and just about the first day I got there, my first creative creative director gave me the best lesson, which I'm sure he told everybody. And that was the immortal lines when you're, you know, he gave me an assignment. I came back and it was, eh, you know, decent. It was like write a tag for a Sears coat, you know, that's going to hang in store. It was it wasn't going to affect anybody's life. Right. And so, but he looks at it and he goes, you know, that's this, that, and the other thing. And he goes, you know what? Take a look at some of these tags. You know, he had some on hand because he knew, because we worked for Sears. So he had a bunch. And he goes, the first thing I got to tell you is rookies create pro steel. And I was like, oh, wow. You have to creatively take what somebody else has done and build on it, which is so true. I mean, that's what rock and roll's built on, right? It's taking what the Buddy Hollies and the Little Richards and all those guys did. Keith Richards, Keith Richards, Keith Richards stole so many licks from Chuck Berry, but just improved upon him just enough to create his own song. And that Mm -hmm. was such, that was such a great lesson. It's not plagiarism, you have to do it creatively, but you take a great idea, you steal it and you make it your own. That I think there's so a much. book. Somebody wrote a book about that. Somebody wrote a book about um, stealing is creating. I can't remember the title of the book, but no, yeah. no, I mean, comedy boy, that is, you know, there's only so many premises, you know, yeah. that you, you know, and so coming up with a new way of saying the same old thing, that is the business right there. Which is exactly why comedians are so paranoid about people stealing their joke. Oh, yeah. It's because that's their stock and trade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there, there's no doubt about that. 
yeah, but those words, uh, those words got me through for uh, many a decade. Is you know, oh, he was right. When you're, when you're stuck, right. when you're stuck, look around and get inspired by something else. And now I won't say my best ideas came from that. Usually my best ideas, and anybody will tell you this in the business, lightning strikes. You just, all of a sudden, you've been thinking about something for a long time, and all of a sudden, the lightning bolt hits you, and you look at it in a whole different way. Then you, you know, it's like when you're trying to remember a name, and you can't remember the name, but all of a sudden it comes to you. That's how most great creative ideas and advertising came to me or other people that I worked with is just a boom. But you make your bread and butter by by making sure you know what's going on out there. And then you somehow process that in your own way. And that's sort of the distillation of rookies create pro steel. And that would be the advice I'd give anybody going into their career, no matter what their career is. Take a look around, see what succeeds, and build on it. I there that is a that's a really really good piece of advice, and a great lesson, and and good for you that you that you met that guy earlier in your career, really yeah. early in your career in advertising. Paul Dabrowski, the guy was excellent, excellent guy. Uh, <laughs> he was always good for getting in a bar fight too. Yeah, <laughs> of course he Sometimes. was. Sometimes with our own, with his fellow employees, most times, in fact, because he probably figured, I know him, I can take him. So he would start a fight with somebody who, you know, like our art director or something. He was a piece of work. Great guy. Just a great guy. The And I got an interesting story. My next creative director was Bob Scarpelli, who is definitely in the Advertising Hall of Fame, came up with some of the great ad campaigns, some of the great McDonald's campaigns, uh, Bud Light, uh, Budweiser. I mean, he had his hand in a lot of great, great ads. But uh, he, when he started, he was interviewing around and he went to Leo Burnett to interview. And the guy who interviewed him was John Hughes, who later would become a great American filmmaker. Yes. But he, he was a creative director at Leo Burnett at that time, the big ad agency in Chicago. And, and, uh, before he got his muse and became a director of what, 16 Candles, uh, The Breakfast Club, so many of those teenage movies. But uh, which, which uh, so he walks in, Bob Scarpelli, doesn't know John Hughes more than any other creative director at the time, and uh, takes a seat. And John Hughes says, I just have one question to ask you. And Bob's like, you know, my whole, you know, will I get hired or won't I get hired? Depends on whatever this question is. And he goes, who's the greatest guitarist of all time? Oh, wow. (laughs) Which is such a great question to ask if you're a creative director. You want to like who you're going to work with and get along with them. And so this is a test. What kind you know, who inspires you creatively? So he just asked a simple question. Who's the great? And he made it clear he was only going to ask one question. Oh, that's the greatest guitar player of all time. So Bob Scarpelli starts freaking out. Oh, oh man, you know, he starts trying to guess, out guess, and then he just says, screw it. I'm just going to go with my gut. Who do I like? And he goes, Jeff Beck. Oh, and good choice. John Hughes gets up out of his seat and goes, finally, somebody got it right. <laughs> You're hired. And he was hired right on the spot. 
And so that's the kind of whack job that John Hughes was, bless his soul. Uh, and uh, so Scarpelli did get hired. Eventually he got fired by that same John Hughes. But oh, funny. He, and then, you know, but being fired was probably the best thing that ever happened because he went to another agency and killed it and uh, became one of the top guys in all of Chicago for for decades to come. But the, uh, oh, someday we have to have Bob Scarpelli on because he can tell you some great, great McDonald's. Uh, who's the guy? Ronald McDonald. He used to do a lot of the old Ronald McDonald ads. And the original Ronald McDonald was a stone cold drunk. And oh, of just, course he was. Of course. Uh, he, he would, they would spend half the time propping him up, getting him in and out before anybody else noticed that this guy, you know, if they had to go to a restaurant after the shoot, it was like, oh, God, just make sure nobody knows he's Ronald McDonald, you know, because he wouldn't wear his outfit at the restaurant. But their great fear was always that somebody would find out that this was the bonehead that was actually Ronald <laughs> That, those are always, stories we need. Well, we are stories unlimited, and that is we need to hear those stories. We need to hear those stories. We, uh, you know, in fact, we do. We will be once our technology gets to the next level. I think we need to start having guests on, and that won't be long. But until then, thanks for listening. Appreciate you uh, tuning in, and please share and with your family and friends, and take care. Thanks, everybody. Well, we've come to another storybook ending. Thanks for stopping by the Stories Unlimited podcast, and that's Stories UNLTD. We'd appreciate you following us on Spotify, as well as on Apple Podcasts, and you can email us at storiesunltd at gmail.com. 